0: Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and
1: present. Hello, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Jenny. And I'm Marcy. And today we're talking about Vince Paper Paperboy. It was a 2014 Newberry Honor Book.
0: So with this episode, we are drinking what we are calling a Memphis lemonade, which uh, is basically a regular lemonade that Jenny made from scratch, to which we have added Jack Daniels. Um, Whiskey is mentioned several times in the book, and while the author himself does not drink, and the whiskey definitely takes a bad rap in the book, we figured we would um, spice it up a little bit.
1: And we'll have a review of that later. Um, Right now, I'm going to read a synopsis from the Carcass Review of Paperboy. Little man, whose real name isn't revealed until the conclusion, stutters badly, a situation that presents new difficulties now that he's taken over his friend's paper route for a month. (laughs) I really like the main character. Spoiler alert, we're going to use his actual name, even though we don't learn that until the end of the book when we're reading it. His name is Victor. So... Uh, Victor, who is known as Little Man for most of the book, um, he is. His character is really interesting. It's all. It's mostly from. Well, I guess it's it's first person, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the story is told without quotation marks. It's told with paragraphs that are not indented, and a lot of the paragraphs are kind of short. And I find this stylistic choice really interesting, um, reading from the point of view of a character that stutters and seeing their internal monologue and how easily that flows versus how how hard it is for Victor to speak. Um, I love that dichotomy. I think it's really, really well done.
0: Yeah, I, um, I really... Normally I hate it when punctuation is changed just because I'm sort of a stickler for that kind of thing, but it works so well in this context, and it makes... We talked about this in the interview. We, we recently interviewed um, the author, Vince Potter, and we talked about how it, it makes it seem like the world he's in is silent, which the main character's whole conflict really is the fact that he has this terrible stutter that he's trying to overcome, and he finds it difficult to speak at all. You know, he, he does what he can, but he has all these tricks up his sleeve for coping with different sounds that just won't come out, and he's working on it. Um, but he he largely lives in a in a silent world because he just doesn't want to talk because it's so hard for him, and it has so many negative reactions from people. And the lack of quotation marks just conveys that so well.
1: hmm It really does. Um, and another thing that I really like is that through the course of the book, Victor starts to learn about the things he's really good at. And he he seems to gain a confidence over this course of the book. And I, I think that's really important um, for the development of the character. But I think it's also important for, as an example, to kids who are reading it, and some adults, um, that you can struggle with parts of your life and parts of the ways that you communicate, but that doesn't mean that you're completely stuck.
0: Well, and I do like, too, how he is not at all shy about owning the things that he's good at. So the fact that, for instance, he's good at throwing because he's into baseball, you know, he just takes it for granted that he's awesome at that, and he uses it for different things that are turn out to be really important um, and one of the, the smaller things is this paper route where he can throw with like pinpoint accuracy, getting the newspaper to people's houses, but he he isn't shy about saying that he's awesome at that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also liked, um, I liked Mr. Spiro a lot. Um, I thought that he was a great mentor, kind of unexpected mentor and, um, I feel like there have been times in my own life where people have maybe taken me by the hand or said to me things that maybe they felt I needed to hear. And I really did need to hear them. Um, so I thought it was really special to see, you know, a neighbor taking an interest in this kid and giving him a kind of reaching out his hand, um, and giving help without being asked. Um, so I thought, and I kept picturing him as Mr. Rogers, like just in my head, he was Mr. Rogers. Um, so when he was getting ready to leave for his trip at the end and he's got on like a starch white shirt, I was like, that's not right. Mr. Rogers wouldn't do it. <laughs>
0: like, I was somehow a little taken aback to realize he was a sailor. Yeah. Or I mean a merchant marine, but yeah. still. But um, it was nice to have that, that mentor character. I did, I did like the way that he characterized people, like one of the strengths of the book, I think, is just the characterization of all these people. Newspaper routes and baseball were not at my alley necessarily, but the characters themselves were very interesting.
1: Yeah. Well, they felt very nuanced, but they also felt very current in a way, mm-hmm. even though, you know, this is set in 1959 Memphis, and our main character is a young white boy. He has close a close relationship with his, um,
0: is she a babysitter? Nanny, housekeeper. Nanny, housekeeper. He calls her ma'am. Mm-hmm. I feel like they have an actual relationship. Mm-hmm. He seems much closer to her than he does to his
1: parents. Yeah. Um, but I feel like he the time was taken to give all of the characters enough space to really you can see them Mm -hmm. and you can really get a sense of who they are and what's happening with them aside from our main character's story
0: yeah it is interesting how he has all these things going on but he's also taking the time to notice the problems that other people are having like with ma'am and all of the people who are african-american in the book he he keeps noticing and pointing out the injustices that are happening to them And I don't know if that's a function of just him being a good person, that character, or the author focusing on people who need a voice in more than one way, Mm -hmm. because he's really trying hard to give people voices. Yeah, I don't know, because it reads in the book,
1: like, it almost reads not like Victor is, it never reads as Victor saying, well, I'm really great. I'm you know, like in any way of him being like, Well, I see that people are equal. (laughs) You know,
0: I'm awesome. No, he's Um, just like, Why don't you get to sit in the front of the bus? That's not right.
1: Yeah. And um You know, I think we all like to think that we would be have been that kid and we would have seen past how we were raised and seen, you know, people's humanity. Um but as I get older You know, as I get older, the less I'm sure of anything like that, right? Yeah. But um, it was interesting to see it from that perspective of him just being like, it's not right. Not necessarily going into the bigger issues or the bigger philosophies, but just seeing the people who are important to him and that he knows they deserve to be treated like humans. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, And not even a generalization like that. Just like a thing happening and him going, no, what? no yeah Yeah. which if everybody acted like that we wouldn't have the issues that we do
1: yeah i thought with with very few exceptions all of the characters had enough space to actually become really fully
0: fleshed yeah even the ones that didn't start out that way like he um he on his newspaper route is passing an open door or a window of the same house every day and sees someone watching tv and he at first dislikes this person and calls them TV boy in his mind. Um, and that is like the most closed minded he is in the whole book. And by the end, he's actually made friends with, with TV boy and they're almost best friends.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, he discovers that TV boy is actually deaf and he uses ASL. And there's a moment where he realizes or feels a kinship with TV boy that they both communicate in ways that are not mainstream. Mm hmm. Um, and I think that that's, that was an interesting point and a great
0: point of growth for Vince. So this book is completely autobiographical. The author's name is Vince vader The main character's name is Victor Vollmer. They have the same stutter. Um, all of the characters are drawn from the author's childhood except for the mentor character, Mr. Spiro, Um, who he later realized was basically the mentor that he wished he had and wrote for himself. But he didn't even realize that while he was writing the book. Um, But that, I think, just makes this book the more interesting to to think of looking back at your own childhood and and seeing it with enough clarity to write a book like this is impressive. (laughs)
1: Definitely. I mean, I look back at my childhood, I mean, much younger than this, and I know that there are things that I was an unreliable narrator about. Like, <laughs> I swear, when I was about five years old, I saw a tiny flying hamburger. <laughs> like, seriously. I, like, for a really long time was like, I saw a tiny flying hamburger and, like, didn't really realize that that can't actually happen. And um, now when I think about it, I'm like, I probably just saw a really big bee.
0: Right? Like,
1: and the coloration made it look like a little tiny flying hamburger. But, you know.
0: Hello. Mm, um,
1: so my memoir or my reimagining of my childhood in a semi-autobiographical fashion would be a bit different.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, even when I think back about the things that happened in my childhood, like, I can remember some important historical things. Like, I was actually... Um, walking across the street in my kindergarten class in florida when the challenger exploded like not on tv but in person i saw it oh my
1: god are yeah. you serious
0: and yeah <laughs> and we were i got remember that vividly but like i remember all these specific things happening but i don't think i could make them coalesce into the kind of story that he did
1: well i actually i was we were watching on tv in class and It started to explode and our teacher turned off the TV and then rolled the TV out into the hall. And, like, we didn't talk about it. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. And, I mean, we must have
0: been... I was, like, in first or second grade. I was in kindergarten then. Yeah. And I remember it because there was a teacher on on that shuttle. And, I mean, shuttle launches were no big deal. Like, we actually... We lived in Orlando, but it was... Close enough to Cape Canaveral that whenever there was a shuttle launch, our um, garage door would rattle from the sonic boom. Oh wow! You know, and you could see it going up in the sky about the size of a of an airplane if you're looking from the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we were crossing the street and I looked up and there was this giant plume of smoke and the the principal stopped to talk to our teacher because we were like in two little lines holding hands crossing the street in kindergarten, and and. Not any way to turn that off so they had to explain what happened oh my god yeah wow every time we talk
1: now like you saw a kid almost fall into the grand canyon like you saw the challenger explode with your bare eyes like (laughs) i'm like at that age like i said i thought i saw a flying hamburger so like this is fascinating to me you don't think
0: a flying hamburger is fascinating to me i think it shows
1: um imagination And a lack of, like a a lack of a tie to reality.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Florida has its own reality. I also recall, I think it was my third grade class, clustered in complete fascination, all of us, the entire class, around a frozen puddle because we had never seen such a thing outdoors before. (laughs) So, yeah. Some things seemed amazing and others were amazing, but I think the puddle actually held our attention longer.
1: Like the main situation, because, you know, we have Victor Stutters and he's taken over Rats, um, who's his friend's, uh, paper route and he's uh-huh. meeting all these people on the route and like Mr. Spear is on that route and, um, uh, Mrs. Worthington, Worthington who that, that's part of the action. That's part of kind of the, the situation that comes up that needs to be solved, um, I can't think of a be- the best way to describe that.
0: Yeah, she is... That's the one thread that was a little bit um, odd to me because I felt like it didn't get tied up. Not not what happened to her, but his like fascination with her.
1: Mm-hmm. I
0: felt like was leading to something or going somewhere, and then it didn't. I was glad with it not leading anywhere too far. Yeah. Because I got
1: that he was kind of enthralled by her, and I felt like that was enough. mm mm-hmm um, for, you know, a young man to be like, oh, she's so pretty. She's a pretty lady. She has problems. Um, I was okay with that, but I did,
0: I did want to know what happened. Mm -hmm. So basically Mrs. Worthington was a woman on his route who was always either crying or drunk on her porch or fighting with her husband and acting very oddly, but she was beautiful and he the main character was was just fascinated by her mm-hmm. and wanted to see her again, and that was pretty much the extent of it. But um, it was just a little strange. It was a little noirish for me, which I thought was interesting
1: to be thrown in the middle of this kind of, to me, you know, a southern, a southern summer story. It's very sweaty and and kind of gritty. Um, my own experience of growing up in the south. Um, so it felt very noirish in the midst of everything, and um, that was, it didn't entirely fit all the time, but, I, I mean, I got it, mm-hmm. but,
0: you know, yeah. And then there's the, the action with Ara, or is it Ara? It's either Ara-T or Ara-T, hmm. um, but just a, a junk man who lives in the neighborhood and his, um, I don't know what to call her, nanny?
1: I housekeeper. think nanny is the best way
0: to. Yeah, ma'am. So um, his nanny, ma'am, keeps telling him to stay away from Rat, but doesn't explain why. Mm -hmm. And there's just like small details that add up to something else where he um, has left Rat his knife to sharpen and he's trying to get it back. And so even though ma'am has told him to steer clear, he just wants to go get his knife back so he can use it for the paper route to untie his newspapers. So he keeps disobeying her in kind of little ways to try and to get the knife back. Mm hmm. I do wonder, um, all of the characters are so autobiographical. I wonder if any adventure like this ever happened to Mr. Potter. I
1: don't know. And I, I, we we should have asked him him that
0: part. We asked him about all sorts of other things. I can't imagine that it did, but who knows?
1: Yeah. Who knows? Um, so I thought it was super fascinating Um, Just the little glimpses we got of the newspaper business in 1959. Um, And when I was a high school journalist, I just kept thinking about something I learned when I was a high school journalist, which is newspaper ink never really dries. Mm. And that's why you get it on your fingers. And so um, I just kept thinking about him having those kind of inky, dusty fingers. And um,
0: that that
1: was an interesting point for me.
0: Feel like ma'am would have made him go scrub them. Oh, yeah. She would have made him scrub them. Um, Do we feel...
1: I don't know if we can talk about this. Do we feel like ma'am was like a mammy character?
0: Yeah. I mean... But also... Not... Uh, I could... I don't feel like she was
1: reductive.
0: No. No. And she was clearly a real person. And had he done this based on research instead of his own life, I would have been as impressed. Because he made her a real person. Mm -hmm. Like, she's not a stereotype. She does a lot of things that weren't expected Mm -hmm. and things that weren't safe. Like, I think the whole deal with the Mammy trope or character is that, like, she's there to be a security blanket and that's it. Like, she has no life of her own and she she doesn't do either of those things. Like, she has a definite life of her own and she is not safe all the time. She's comforting, but she's not safe.
1: I agree with you. I think this is definitely not that. Um, I,
0: I can think see it's, where she fits that role.
1: Yeah, and I think that it's it's a, a hard line to walk because she is in that role of caregiver and it is the 1950s in Memphis, Tennessee. But you do see into his life and you see that she's a big part of it, like an active part of it. And it's not just when they're at home, like they go out into public and she's his person. She's his adult. Mm -hmm. Um, And he has no qualms about that. He takes her, you know, he's like, no, we're getting a picture taken together. We're sitting on the front of the bus together. Like, you know, there are moments where he doesn't understand why, like, she can't go to the zoo anytime she wants unless she's in a uniform and with him.
0: And on a certain day.
1: Yeah. Um, and I think that's super important that he recognizes those limitations and maybe she's told him that at, at some point, but he knows about those things and he knows the role that him being white, what that means. You know, it means that he can take her into the zoo. It means that he, she can sit in the front of the bus. Um So I, you know, it wasn't completely spelled out, but I felt like it was a bit of a nod to, you know, Victor realizing his privilege.
0: It is. And it's also uh, impressive that even though he's scared to say hello to people, he never hesitated to go and advocate for her.
1: Yeah. Which was nice.
0: Like he would go and talk to anybody. Like he went and the, the picture taking man, like he went and had a whole conversation and spiel about, he actually like lied and made up this whole story to to get the picture-taking guy to let him take a picture with her. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was scared to just say hello to people at school. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was uh, a nice part of that character. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I think
1: when she's first introduced and her name is ma'am, mom, ma'am? Ma'am, I think. I was like, oh, no. I know. <laughs> what are we in for? <laughs> But I was pleasantly surprised. I felt like by the end, I really knew her as a character and not just this figure or a stand-in for a lot, that role.
0: A lot more than we knew as parents. Yeah. Although and, the dad was really coming into his own at the end. Although we find out yeah, <laughs> that... I don't think we can say I don't, that. Yeah, I don't <laughs> want to spoil it, but yeah. there, there's a big uh, reveal about the parents, and uh, we won't spoil it for you, but... Um, that's when the parents start becoming more than figures and actually like real characters. Mm -hmm. Although one thing I did notice at the very end was how his mother is doing this thing throughout the book where she is saying things that she doesn't understand, or she's using words that she obviously doesn't completely know the meaning of she's using them wrongly. And he says something about um, whether it's worse not to be able to say something at all or to say something and not know what it means. Um, and I think the character is saying that literally, but obviously the author means it figuratively as well. And at the end, he offers to help her and and tell her you know, what the things she's saying mean. And I think that that is a sign of the mother's potential future growth, which hopefully we'll see more of in the sequel because um, we have a copy here of it, but there is a sequel to this book coming out called Copy Boy, where um, Victor is no longer a paper boy, but a copy boy working on a newspaper, which uh, we're told is a little bit more fictionalized account of the, the character's later adventures, but still roughly autobiographical. I don't know if it's worse not being able to say words at all or being able to say them and not know what they mean.
1: What do you think is worse?
0: Well, I have a horror of saying something and sounding like an idiot, which is <laughs> really interesting considering that we're doing podcasts, <laughs> it, which consist of basically nothing but personal stories and our own opinions. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I think I would I would far rather be silent than blatantly wrong. I would agree with you. Um, I don't think it's a right to be silent, but I think that if I were forced into one or the other, that's what I would pick.
1: Yeah. I think for me, since I was very small, words have been such a freeing thing for me to consistently have to use them incorrectly and like be aware of it Ugh. um if I may had to make that choice, it would drive
0: me it would drive me up a wall um it would make me very, very unhappy, which so. and the main character in this book has the worst of both worlds because he not only can't say what he wants to say but he is constantly observing that other people are doing things wrongly. Mm-hmm. The intense focus on words is something I can totally relate to and I thought was interesting but um, what torture to have people using words wrongly all around you willy-nilly when you can't say them yourself. Yeah. Which is part of the good writing of this book actually. Definitely. Let's do our read-alikes. I have one that is not a read-alike, but sort of a feel-alike, um, because it's a movie. <laughs> That's a new one. <laughs> um, because for me, the the closest familiar thing to the tone of this book was the movie The Sandlot, which may have been based on a book, I don't know. But um, you know that movie? Yeah, so the, the character in this book, we haven't really talked about it too much, but he loves baseball, which was sort of a coping a coping mechanism at first because he wasn't able to speak very well, but he was really good at sports. Um, and I don't know if it's just the dusty summer feeling, the vintage tone of everything or what, but like the, the feel of it was similar to me. And then also, um, El Defo by CC bell. Um, just because it's about another kid in the same sort of age bracket who's dealing with, uh, a physical issue that they eventually turn to their benefit. Like not only cope with, but really thrive.
1: Mm-hmm. Those are, those are great. Um, I chose, um, it's not a complete trilogy yet, but it's the sixties trilogy by Deborah Wiles. I
0: love those books. And so
1: the first book is countdown and it's set, I believe in 1958. I think that's right. Um, and then the second one is revolution and it's set in 1964. Um, so they're kind of photo collage, fictional novels. I don't know the right terminology.
0: They're amazing is what they are.
1: They are. Um, so she's written stories and each of the books focuses on um, a particular girl's story. Um, so the first one is about kind of the, the scare of like the like nuclear attack scares um, and how what that does to a a girl and her town, um, and the second one is about voters' rights, voting
0: rights, and about um, Freedom Summer. So the thing that I love about those books is, in case you haven't read them, it's sort of historical fiction, and the the story is complete that way. But peppered throughout the entire thing are these beautiful, perfect pictures and articles and every kind of documentation you can imagine that that are real that are not made up that are from the time and it just lends such an amazing like tone and texture and realism to the book and the story and it's it's like all the research you would want to do like when you're reading a book and you're wondering oh what about this and what about that and like but it's there for you already for you to look at it's just gorgeous
1: and i got i get to hear Deborah Wiles speak Um, at a conference last year and she showed us um, her Pinterest pages where she actually does all her research. Like she puts all her uh, photograph, like her photographs that she uses for research and ultimately a lot of them are used in her books. Mm. Um, So I'll, we'll link to that as well because they're, they're phenomenal. So our drink review Memphis lemonade. I found a recipe from Bon Appétit for lemonade. I made it. <gasps> bon Appétit betrayed us. I love <laughs> Bon Appétit. <laughs> I do feel a little betrayed. Um we'll post the recipe. If you have a better homemade lemonade recipe, please let us know. Um it was the first time I'd ever really made it from scratch.
0: I didn't know that's where it came from. I've subscribed to that magazine for like a decade. I love it. It's I can't really great. Believe.
1: It's this okay? So I followed the recipe and then I put like two ounces of Jack Daniels in it.
0: It's not. It's not bad.
1: It's not bad. But I was telling Marcy that it tastes the way Lemon Pledge smells. (laughs) It also. It just kind of tastes a little like dish soap smells, like lemon dish soap smells. It's just very. It's not astringent. Like oh, I'm I'm cleaning my insides, but it's. I feel like I'm drinking a cleaning solution.
0: Yeah, it doesn't have the kind of oomph I was expecting. Mm-mm. It's, it's like not
1: too bitter. It's not like it's too lemony or too bitter. It just doesn't ha- maybe have enough sugar, but I feel like even that wouldn't have had... mm
0: I don't think so either. I'm not even sure maybe what's some going honey?
1: Maybe. Maybe. But i really thought we couldn't go wrong by like making lemonade from scratch and then putting whiskey in it like i really did not think that it could go wrong but <laughs> so you know i think the memphis whiskey uh, the memphis lemonade is something that could definitely work and we've gotta we gotta perfect this because yeah. i think it could be great but this did not work
0: hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Well, do you agree? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm drinking it. It's, it's not, it doesn't taste bad. Like I said, it's just not great. And but I'm amazed that you went to the effort of making lemonade. I've always wanted to do it, and I was like, this is a
1: perfect opportunity. Even though it's what forty degrees outside, <laughs> yeah. I was like, we're gonna do it. It's the end it? of citrus season, so yeah, it was a good time to do it. Um, so that's it yep uh. <laughs> thanks for joining us on the newberry tart podcast next episode we'll be discussing holly black's doll bones thanks so much for listening jenny
0: might make me drink out of a doll head <laughs> <Might. We'll see. laughs> it's happening <laughs> see you next time if i make it <laughs> Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Meitinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N E W B E R Y T A R T dot com.